we know that the events of this week will ultimately lead to Jesus ascending to the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Now, as a kid growing up in church, Palm Sunday was a festive occasion. We got to make uh, palm branches out of construction paper in Sunday school, and then we would come out and wave them around, and yeah, it was fun. We got to celebrate Jesus. It was, it was a very just fun and an exciting time. And that excitement is, is a big part of this story, but it's not actually the whole story. We often focus on this triumphal aspect of the story, but we easily forget that the story actually ends with Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem as he enters it. And and why does Jesus weep? I think this is because Jesus' followers, then and now, see this triumphal entry as the beginning of the revolution. But Jesus knows it's actually the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. And he knows what this moment means for the city of Jerusalem. While the disciples rightfully celebrate Jesus as the Messiah King, Jesus knows that the only crown he will be wearing by the end of this week will be a crown of thorns. Jesus knows as he approaches the gates of Jerusalem that the Messiah's coming, as foretold by the prophets, proceeds to destruction of the holy city. So there's hundreds of years of history and prophecy have been leading up to this moment, kind of building up to this moment. There's so much more going on here than just a parade. And Jesus knows this, and I think he feels the weight of it as he enters Jerusalem. So this morning, I just I want to look at a couple things. And the first thing is, what's really going on here? What prophecies are being fulfilled? What's the context of this, of this event? There's, there's just so much more going on than just what we see on the surface here. And the second thing I want to look at briefly is, is how people responded to all this and how we can respond. But before we dig in, let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here and, uh, and worship you and celebrate as, as your followers did so many years ago. And uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear uh, the words that you would say, Lord. We pray that you would open your scripture to, to us and uh, that you would speak to us and you would uh, make us willing to receive what you have to say. In your name we pray, amen. So before we get started, there's a little bit of important historical context that, that we kind of need to understand as we approach this text. So Jesus is being hailed as, as king or Messiah, and that term Messiah is a very loaded term. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament kind of foretell about this Messiah to come, and the people of Jesus' time had expectations about what that Messiah would, would look like or be like. And a A common expectation about the Messiah was that the Messiah would come in power and might and he would conquer Israel's enemies and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem forever. Many people expected a powerful warrior like like David, King David, or or like Joshua to, to come in and drive out their enemies. They expected the Messiah to initiate some sort of political or military revolution. And now the land of Israel was, in Jesus' time, was under Roman occupation. In fact, over the last couple hundred years, there'd been quite a revolving door of occupiers and empires that had con- controlled the land of Israel. And occasionally, a Jew- Jewish revolutionary would rise up, fight back, and, and with varying degrees of success, they would, they would drive out the enemies, only to be recaptured again. 
The Romans eventually were the most recent people to recapture them, and uh, they set up this guy called Herod the Great as king of the Jews. And they eventually kind of worked things out with the Jewish leaders to keep a sort of enforced peace over the land. So if the Messiah were to come at this time, people expected someone who would overthrow the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel to the Jewish people. So it's against the, the backdrop of these expectations that we kind of we begin to approach our, our verse this morning. So let's start in verse 28. Verse 28 says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Okay, so stop. First question, what are these things that he's talking about? The writer clearly wants to connect this event to what Jesus had just said previously. So let's look at what it is. If we flip back just a few verses, we'll see it's the parable known as the parable of the ten minus, minus, I don't know actually how to pronounce it, the ten monies, the ten monies. In this parable, a nobleman goes away to receive his kingdom, and he puts his servants in charge of his money while he's away, and he tells them to do business with it. So after this Lord returns from receiving his kingdom, he comes back to see how the servants have done, and, and they've done quite well, actually. Some of them have grown the money five times, even ten times, and they're commended for it. But one servant hides the money and returns it with nothing gained, and that servant is condemned. Now, picking apart this parable is a whole sermon for another day, but I want us to know why Jesus told this parable. Luke 19.11 says this, He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the reason Jesus is telling this parable to his followers is because they were expecting him to imminently bring about the kingdom. They thought, like, this is happening now. But it's interesting because this parable features a Lord that must first go away to receive his kingdom and then return later. The last thing Jesus is teaching his disciples before he enters Jerusalem is that he, the Lord, must first go away before he receives the kingdom. You see, Jesus knew that he was not establishing his earthly kingdom at this point. He was trying to communicate that to his followers. He was saying, the kingdom of God is not going to come in the way that you would expect it to come. He's shifting the expectations for what's about to happen. He's not about to bring about a a political or military revolution. He actually has to first leave and go away. So those are the things that are referred to in verse 28. That's, that's kind of the immediate context of our passage. That's where it fits into the book of Luke. With that in mind, we can approach the rest of our text. So one verse down, 16 more to go. <laughs> buckle, <laughs> buckle up. Uh, so let's continue on to verse 29. Um, it says this, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Okay, so everything Jesus is doing right now is is loaded with meaning, right down to the road that he chooses to take into the city. Our passage says he took took the road from Bethphage and Bethany down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Now, the road down the Mount of Olives approaches Jerusalem from the east, and I'd really love to tell you that that this is symbolic because the sun rises in the east, and, and it's a symbol of hope, and that's why, but it's not. 
I mean, it's a nice touch, and maybe there's, there's part of it that's there, but there's actually something more significant uh, going on here. This choice of root is significant because of something the prophet Zechariah said several hundred years earlier. Zechariah was this prophet, and he prophesied quite a bit about the day of the Lord. And in Zechariah 14, 3-4, he says, writes this, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move north and the other half south. So this passage clearly lays out this expectation that when the Lord comes to fight for Israel, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It's from the Mount of Olives that he's going to launch his attack on his enemies. Now, what I'm actually going to suggest is that the event described in Zechariah is not one and the same as the events in the triumphal entry. Obviously, the mountain didn't split in two, and Jesus didn't start a war with Israel's enemies. But the expectation was there. And as we learned, Jesus' disciples were expecting the kingdom to come imminently. And then when Jesus goes and chooses to take this road down the Mount of Olives, like that, that, that just, that's icing on the cake, like, All the signs are pointing to Jesus being the Messiah. But remember what Jesus just told them. He must first go away and then come back later. So yes, the Lord will return and fight for his people from the Mount of Olives. And we are meant to see that connection Jesus is making here. He is the one that's going to come and save his people. We know from reading our Bibles right to the end of Revelation that Jesus will return, conquer his enemies, and establish his kingdom. And I think that's what Jesus is pointing us to when he rides down this particular road. He identifies himself as the Lord who fights for his people, as described in Zechariah. But there's a bit of a not yet to this statement. So while Jesus is not necessarily fulfilling this prophecy at this time, he's certainly aligning himself with it, and and he's using the reputation of the Mount of Olives to make a statement about who he really is. So if the road Jesus chooses didn't make enough of a statement, his mode of transportation certainly did. Our passage says Jesus rode a colt. Other gospel accounts specifically say it's a donkey's colt. And again, we've got to look to the prophet Zechariah to understand the significance of this. Zechariah 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So that's kind of about as on the nose as it gets. Your king is coming mounted on a donkey. But there's actually a couple things uh, going on that Jesus is doing when he chooses to ride this donkey. The first is quite simple. It's, it's obvious. Zechariah prophesies the Messiah king will come riding on a donkey, and Jesus rides on a donkey. So that one's pretty straightforward. But there's a second part to this prophecy and to what Jesus is doing here. The second part of Zechariah's prophecy says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. The prophet here is contrasting this donkey next to a war horse. 
and a chariot. Jesus has been trying to tell his disciples that he's not this warlike Messiah that they are expecting. He's actually the kind of king that's going to do away with the war horse and the chariot. He doesn't come galloping in on this white stallion to send the Romans packing. He comes plodding in on a beast of burden to give up his life. So I mentioned before that other Jewish revolutionaries had risen up to fight the Greeks and the Romans, and I think people watching Jesus kind of expected the same thing. They would remember, if they knew their recent history, a guy by the name of Simon Maccabeus, who had done something nearly identical about 150 years earlier. After a successful military campaign, he entered Jerusalem to the waving of palm branches and drove the Romans out of town. Jesus contrasts Simon by entering Jerusalem after a successful campaign of healing to drive sin out of town. When Jesus enters on a donkey, he's saying that the kingdom is not one of military or political might. It's a donkey, it's not a war horse. Jesus echoes this sentiment a little bit later. On the night that he's betrayed, Peter tries to defend Jesus with his sword, and he cuts the ear off one of the guys who's arresting Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He tells Peter, no more of this. And he heals the guy. Now, how many of us would be like Peter? In that situation, would we not rise up to defend our Lord? Standing down seems weak. Letting, it might even seem disloyal to, to let them. You're going to let them arrest Jesus? And yet, that's exactly what Jesus commands Peter to do. Because Jesus is not accomplishing his kingdom the way the world would accomplish it. He's not accomplishing it the way we would accomplish it. That's what the donkey means. Not only does it fulfill the, fulfill the prophecy, <laughs> but it reveals to us what kind of king Jesus will be. <clears throat> so Jesus is riding this prophesied donkey down this prophesied mountain, approaching Jerusalem. His followers are singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So what his followers are quoting here is actually a quote from, from Psalm 118. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I found this interesting and did a little bit of digging. And I went back and read a little bit more of Psalm 118. And I want to share what I found with you. So this is Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the verse the disciples are quoting actually comes from a larger passage that's about how the Lord saves. The writer of Psalm 118 is, is begging the Lord for salvation to, and to be made right, righteous. Open to me the gates of righteousness. Save us, we pray. They are saying that Jesus is the Lord and that salvation comes from him. And as the psalm says, they rejoice in it. But what I want to look at in this passage is, is right in the middle. It says this, the stone that the builders have rejected 
has become the cornerstone. So Jesus will go on to actually quote this shortly after he arrives in Jerusalem. And in many ways, it kind of summarizes what he's coming to Jerusalem to do. He's coming to be rejected. And he's coming not on a war horse, but a donkey. He's coming not to split open the mountain and rain hellfire on his enemies, but to be delivered into their hands. He comes not to conquer and kill, but rather to be killed. This king comes only to face rejection, humiliation, torture, and death. And that rejected king will become the cornerstone of our faith. So I had a brief story. I had a basketball coach in high school, and his favorite thing to tell us at halftime was, we got him right where we want him. We could be losing by 50 points, and he'd look around the room and smile and say, we got him right where we want him. And of course, we would all roll our eyes. Yeah, right? There's no chance of winning. But I kind of hear Jesus saying that in this passage. And he's not just losing by 50 points. He's actually approaching the place where he's going to go get crucified. And you know what? He's got him right where he wants him. He's building a kingdom out of a rejected stone. He's riding into battle on a donkey. He's winning by losing. So while the people are singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they, they kind of forget that, that the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And it must have been this bittersweet moment for Jesus. His faithful followers, they're, they're so excited, they're passionate, they're triumphant. They're expecting this great moment of liberation for the people of Israel. But the enemy that he's liberating them from is not the enemy they thought it was. And the means of victory is not what they were expecting. Jesus does not enter Jerusalem to defeat the Romans and the Pharisees by driving them out. Rather, Jesus enters Jerusalem to defeat sin and death by sacrificing himself on the cross. And I think that we as Christians can, can easily forget what this practically means. It, what it means is that our victory is not an earthly victory. If you're political candidate doesn't win the election, Jesus remains king. When we look around and see the moral corruption that we see in society around us, it's easy to somehow think that, that the kingdom is losing ground. We forget that Jesus accomplished victory by dying. We forget that Jesus accomplished our salvation under the nose of one of the most oppressive regimes in history, in one of the most morally bankrupt cultures in history. Did you know a Roman soldier could force a person to carry their gear for up to a mile? You had to drop whatever you were doing. You had no rights. You are now the soldier's pack mule. And what does Jesus say about this? In Matthew 5, he says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus' way is so backwards from what the world sees as success. Instead of resistance and rebellion, he preaches this form of radical submission. He's not the type of Messiah people expected. Even after everything Jesus has taught in his life, people are still expecting a rebellion. And I think this is why the Pharisees try to shush Jesus and his disciples. They say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
They were afraid of antagonizing the Romans. They couldn't have some guy going around proclaiming that he was king. If the Romans caught wind of an insurrection, there would be serious reprisals. Someone could get hurt or even killed. But I also think the Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat to their own authority. You see, while the Romans had political and military authority, they allowed the Pharisees and, and religious leaders to have religious authority over the people. So if Jesus upset the Romans, they could lose that authority. Or if people started listening to Jesus, they might stop listening to them. So their motivation to silence Jesus comes both from a place of jealousy and a place of self-preservation. But the Pharisees had authority because the Romans gave them authority. They had earthly authority. And they did not want to give it up. But Jesus has a much higher authority. He has an authority that is so high that if he were not proclaimed, the very creation itself would speak up. The very rocks would cry out, as he says. Unfortunately, this authority is not recognized and will ultimately lead to their downfall and to, the dis in fact, the destruction of Jerusalem. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he begins to weep. He laments over the city. In verse 42 and onward, he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here Jesus is foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and, he's, and he says it will be destroyed because the city did not recognize him. And Jesus isn't just saying this out of spite. He's not being angry. He's not just coming up with this punishment in the moment. This destruction has actually been predicted for hundreds of years. The prophet Daniel, over 600 years earlier, predicted that shortly after the Anointed One, after the Messiah would come, Jerusalem would be destroyed. So let's read a bit of this prophecy from Daniel now. This is Daniel 9, 24 to 26. He says this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. Jerusalem shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay, so there's a lot going on here, and again, this was one of those passages that could probably have a whole sermon series on it, but I'll do my best to quick break down some of the highlights. First, Daniel is predicting a time when there will be an atonement made for sin. We believe Jesus accomplished this on the cross. Second, Daniel gives an actual timeline as to when this will happen. 
Now, he talks about it in this, this term of, of weeks. Now, scholars actually understand weeks to, to be referring to groups of seven years. So each week would be seven years. So, so the way, way it's understood is that basically from the time the order comes to rebuild Jerusalem, Jerusalem had been destroyed long ago, and there was an order made to rebuild it, to the time of these end of these predicted weeks, these 62 or 70 weeks, depending on how you count it, weeks predicted in Daniel, that's when the Messiah will come. Now, people a lot smarter than me have done the math, <laughs> and, and while there's some disagreement about the exact, exact date, the exact time, they all arrive at about the time of Jesus' life. Third thing Daniel predicts is that after the anointed one is cut off, the city will be destroyed. So Jesus was crucified in 33 AD, and, the, and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So everything Daniel predicts comes true, and Jesus weeps over it. He says, if only you had known. You see, the Pharisees were biblical scholars. They knew the law and prophets inside and out. In fact, they had a lot of it, if not most of it, memorized. They had all these prophecies laid out for them, and yet they did not recognize the Messiah when he was right under their noses. They had everything they needed to be looking for the Messiah at this time, and yet they failed to see him. They, of all people, should have recognized Jesus for who he was. And yet all they wanted to do was sweep him under the rug and shut him up. And if there ever was a day for him to be recognized, it was on this day. But Jesus does not respond with anger. He's not vindictive. Rather, he's saddened. He laments over the holy city of Jerusalem. As he rides down this road, down the Mount of Olives, as he rides down towards the east side of the city, the, the temple's actually right there. He can see the temple. It's the symbol of God's presence with his people. And yet, even the city that boasts to have the house of God does not recognize its true king, and destruction is sure to follow. So with all this in mind and more, Jesus enters Jerusalem, his followers blissfully unaware of the magnitude of what's about to happen. So what then? How, how do we respond to all this? It's, it, it, it feels heavy. How does this change how we celebrate Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry? Should it change? Should, should, we, should we be more sad and solemn? Well, I want to briefly look at three responses to Jesus in our text that can maybe shed some light on how we respond to Jesus. First, I want to look at the Pharisees. Second, the response of the crowds and the followers of Jesus. And third, the, the owners of the donkey. So let's begin with the Pharisees. We already spoke briefly about, about their response. They were trying to shush the disciples. And while rejecting Jesus is, is obviously the wrong answer, I think we can actually take a word of caution from the way that they act. You see, while the Pharisees were, were somewhat motivated by jealousy, they also had a, a legitimate fear of the Romans and what they might do to Jesus if he were to start a rebellion. It actually is totally rational to be worried that Jesus might rock the boat and upset the Romans. 
And the last guy who did that certainly did. But as we learned this morning, Jesus is not that kind of Messiah. He isn't about to start a rebellion. The Pharisees' fear of, is, is unfounded because they don't have a right understanding of who Jesus is. If they, had, if they had just listened to him, they would know. But I think we can commit this error as well. We can often be afraid to speak of Jesus, or, or we get nervous, we get a little bit uncomfortable when others proclaim him because we're afraid of what people might say or do in retaliation. Or we could actually, we could be the other way and assume as the Pharisees did that Jesus is here to rebel and fight the power and, but that's not who he is either. Both can be a pitfall for us. Remaining silent, silencing others or or being silenced is not what we're called to do. But neither are we called to, you know, grab our torch and pitchfork and storm the enemy stronghold. We are simply called to proclaim Jesus as Lord, just as Jesus' followers do, do in our text this morning. Jesus says, if these were silent, the rocks would cry out. This worship and proclamation is necessary. Like, it's, it's so necessary, it's inevitable. Like, if, if we don't do it, the rocks are going to do it. Now, the disciples certainly didn't have it all together. They didn't fully understand what Jesus was going up to do. Um, As we heard in our sermon last week, Jesus literally told them he was going to die, and they had no idea what that meant. Some of them likely thought, similar to the Pharisees, that Jesus was going up to begin a revolt to try to free them from the Romans. But what the disciples did do right is they recognized that Jesus was Lord. They knew he wasn't just another revolutionary. He wasn't just another anointed one. He was the Messiah, capital M Messiah. And the correct response here is praise. It is celebration. And I think we can learn from this. We, like the disciples, may not have it all figured out. We might not understand all the prophecies and all the intricacies of the law that go into moments like this but we can simply recognize Jesus and praise him. They may have had some misguided expectations of exactly how Jesus was going to do things, but they walked with him, they loved him, they called him Lord. And we don't have to have it all figured out. Our theology might not be perfect. We might not have this perfectly clear picture of of Jesus' plan, but we can walk with him We can love him, and we can call him Lord as well. You don't need to be a biblical expert to follow Jesus. You just have to believe in him. So the final response I want to look at in our text is this exchange with the donkey's owners. Jesus sends a couple disciples ahead to find this donkey, and he tells them exactly what will happen and what to say. And the owners of this donkey actually let the disciples take the donkey. Now what I see happening in this part of the story is people simply recognizing Christ and obeying him. The disciples that go get the donkey kind of actually seem like they've been sent on a fool's errand. Jesus says, you're going to go find a donkey for me in the next town. Don't worry, just take it. If the owners ask, just tell them it's for me. Now if it were anyone else but Jesus telling them to do this, it might seem a little foolish. Even if someone just happened to leave a donkey lying around, what are the chances 
they would actually let you take it. If I just hopped in your car and started driving away, you might want a little bit more explanation than the Lord has need of it. <laughs> Jesus needs your car, bye. <laughs> like, no, you're, like, you're going to be like, let's, let's talk about this for a second. Yet the disciples go ahead and it all happens just as Jesus said. They obey Jesus because they recognize who he is. They've seen his miracles. They've seen what he can do. They've walked with him and they, and they trust that when he tells them to do something, even if they, they trust him when he tells them to do something, even if it seems a little bit odd or far-fetched. And I think we can learn something from them. You see, Jesus doesn't always... Sometimes, Je- oh, sorry. sometimes Jesus asks us to do something that doesn't always seem to make a lot of sense. It might not always seem practical. It might even seem foolish to us. But remember, Jesus doesn't always do things the way the world might do them. If we truly recognize him as our king, we ought to obey, like his disciples, even though it may seem strange. Speaking of strange, how would that situation have looked like to the owners of the donkey? They come out of their house, and it, it looks like there's a couple guys stealing their donkey. And then, but then the disciples say, well, the Lord needs it. And the owners just let them take it. They don't charge a damage deposit or a rental fee. They don't even have this attitude, well, if you break it, you buy it. Apparently, the Lord has need of it was a good enough reason for them. Now, I suspect they must have known about Jesus. They must have heard about him. Um, they must have to, to so easily let him borrow their livestock. They must have recognized their Lord and were willing to obey him. They display this, this radical open-handedness, this willingness to serve Jesus. There's nothing in it for them. If, if anything, they're going to they're be down a donkey. And yet they give without question. So how willing are we to obey Jesus in the moment? Now, I'm not saying if someone comes up to your car and says, Jesus needs your car, <laughs> you might, you might want to do a little bit of discerning. But how willing are we to obey Jesus in the moment? How often are we prompted to serve or to reach out, but then we come up with some excuse in our minds why we can't? Do we recognize Jesus as our king, or is he just another zealot we can choose to ignore? What separates the faithful followers of Jesus from the Pharisees in our passage this morning is their ability to recognize Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. And when they rightly recognize Jesus as king, it emboldens them to follow and obey him, even if some of his requests seemed a little odd. I'd like to invite the worship team uh, back up as, I, as, we, as we close. And I want to ask the question, how do we rightly recognize Jesus? See, Jesus was not the type of Messiah that people expected, yet he was the type of Messiah foretold by the prophets. He was written about in God's word. We can know and recognize Jesus better and better by studying the Bible, by studying God's word. All of scripture points to Jesus. And we've only seen a few examples of prophecies this morning about Jesus, and, and we've barely scratched the surface. So I want to encourage, encourage us to go and read and study for ourselves 
Get to know Jesus. Recognize him and his ways. Being rooted in God's word helps us recognize Jesus' voice amongst the the myriad of, of voices and opinions that the world throws at us. It's so easy these days to get lost in in popular opinion or the opinions of those around us. Just as many people in our passage this morning got got caught up in in this wrong expectation about this coming Messiah. But staying centered on Jesus and rooted in the word helps us to know the truth when we see it. So I want to encourage us all to stand firm in Jesus read his word, be prepared to obey when he shows up in our lives. And like the believers back then, let's join in praising him, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we, we thank you for, for all that you've done for us, Lord. We thank you that you died for us. Um, we thank you that we, we don't have to be geniuses or, or, or biblical scholars to, to, to know you, Lord. We, uh, we, we thank you so much that you are, you are approachable, Lord. You, you are our humble king. Um, I, I pray that uh, as we go from this place that we would be strengthened and encouraged to seek you out, to walk with you. Um, to grow with you and, and to better recognize you, that your ways would become our ways, even if, even if the world says our ways are foolish. Pray that you would strengthen us um, for those times. And Lord, we pray that we would, we would celebrate you today. Uh, we know that you're coming, you are coming again, and, and, and we know that yours is the victory, Lord. We know that you win. And we pray that we will be comforted by that. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.